0: Today's bonus episode is a conversation we had with Rowan Larson, the Executive Director of the Human Resources Project. We were lucky enough to tap into his expertise last year as a part of a podcast focused on addressing the broad challenges of human resources. At the same time, capturing today's shared thinking around identifying resources and onboarding. Rowan, there's a...
1: data coming out of the US that's showing there are about um, 60% of the open jobs in manufacturing remaining open. And within 10 years, uh, there will be 2 million vacant positions in the US alone for manufacturing. So I kind of feel like we're almost already in a skills crisis. Uh, What's your view on this?
2: Yeah, I fully agree. I wish I knew the answer uh, and could see a solution. I really don't. At the present time, I know we're moving much more to automation, robotics, artificial intelligence, and there's a lot of talk around uh, people not having jobs in the future and the impact on the workforce. I think we are all probably agreed that the workforce is going to look very, very different in even 15 or 20 years, let alone 10. Um, But for now, Probably most firms and most businesses we're talking to are more immediately concerned with just filling their staff shortages and meeting their staffing requirements now. Most of them are growing. They could be growing faster. Um, That would scare a lot of them, I think. But if they did, the challenge now is to identify the resources from what is available. I think we're very lucky in New Zealand because what we have is a natural attraction here we have where i suppose I often refer to us as the Switzerland of the Pacific. Everybody really does want to live here it 's a wonderful, clean country with good food, nice environment. yes, a lot of people want to come here that 's the biggest draw card we can get people from overseas. Our biggest challenge is probably identifying. How to find those people overseas, and then how to evaluate their skills. But we're very lucky; we don't have the immigration swamping problems that other countries have, or uh, you know, the de- same demographics and challenges. We actually are in a very, very lucky position, so we should be taking advantage of that.
1: We, you have mentioned before um, the increased use of um, offshore labour. Uh, within New Zealand, so how do we respond to the changing demographics, both age and um, experience-wise?
2: Yeah, I'm. We do need to. Well, actually, let me say we've probably improved greatly from where we were ten years ago. Uh, Auckland, particularly, but all of New Zealand now is really, really multicultural. And I think most employers have really embraced that. I know we have equal employment opportunity legislation, but I've been really pleasantly surprised by most employers' adult and, and um, smart attitude to it, very open. Kiwi businesses are really good and really open-minded. In fact, that's possibly to their detriment – they tend to be too trusting of certain um, cultures, I suppose, or or we're not as aware of the challenges that exist overseas, and so we're not aware of the problems we might be importing with people we bring over, and we have to be careful of that and, and cognizant of it. But in New Zealand, most people are really good folk, and the people who come here are generally good and high quality, very high calibre of, of immigrant. Um, therefore, most firms... Are reasonably protected from any really bad disasters, um, but I've been really pleasantly surprised by how employers have embraced an ageing workforce and have understood how to utilise those skills. We've seen a 72-year-old um, stop-go man roading, traffic controller, you know, on the road. Uh, we've dealt with many, many. Um, employees in their 70s still working, and the clients love them. They're part of the family. It's really nice. We're seeing really good gender diversity and and cultural diversity, despite perhaps the voice in the media uh, that you hear a lot of telling you it might be otherwise. We actually see a pretty positive picture. There are some bad apples and you see some bad examples, they get a lot of attention. But in the main, most I think New Zealand employees are very responsible very um, and very strongly values-based. And I think they are embracing um, the the diversity that's out there very, very well.
1: Speaking of the um, ageing population, our accountant, Cam, who we love, um, is turning 74 this year and he has been amazing in terms of embracing new accounting technologies. Um, There seems to be a bit of a stereotype around the ageing workforce and I have got quite a few um, friends who have just retired who have got significant engineering experience. Is there anything that you've come across as a model where we could actually... um, keep that knowledge within the sector?
2: That is a big challenge. Um, Knowledge retention with an an ageing or retiring workforce is a serious issue. Um, There's a lot of know-how. There really is. I suppose uh, I'd encourage firms to try and get apprentices on board and let them work alongside some of the more mature workers it's a very good thing for both of them. Keeps the uh, uh, older workers young and keeps the, makes the, puts a wiser head on the younger workers. And I think there is a value in that. But, but firms probably need to be more active. They're very passive. I think in the busyness of trying to make a profit, uh, some of these things can be lost. They seem to be nice to haves rather than imperatives. And possibly we just need to be a bit more mindful of it because there is some real value in that.
1: The other issue we have, obviously, is um, we have a, a problem being able to attract talent into our industry. How? What are the actual practical steps that a company can do to make themselves more attractive to future engineers or future apprentices? And um, what's your advice there?
2: Yeah, again, this comes back to... Um the, the trend in the workforce at the moment is probably the younger generation are attracted to companies that they respect. Now, you might think manufacturing, steel fabrication, it's a dirty job or something, and people might not want to do it. You might be quite surprised at the motivators for people in the workforce or entering the workforce or choosing vocations it doesn 't necessarily have to be sexy, as in we 're not apple we 're not you know Vodafone or we 're not coca cola or something like that, and there 's always a mystique around brands like that. I think even engineering companies this is a really important point that I really want to stress is that even engineering companies, manufacturing companies that might do a theoretically basic or, or dirty or, or, or job you know in a, in a factory environment. They need to understand that their employment brand is important and they need to think about how they develop that employment brand. One of the key ways that you develop an employment brand is having your company values which make you seem, as I was mentioning in another podcast, it's what makes Italians Italian. It's what makes Swiss Swiss or America, Vegas, people who live in Vegas or LA, Hollywood, Hollywood. Um, it can be good or bad. You may not like it. You may you, know, you may agree or disagree with it, but your tribal value or your identity or flavor, nationality of your company is your employment brand. That's what attracts people. So when you and I say we'd love to go to Italy, we Of course, we want to go because we've seen the lovely pictures and we, it's got this romance and this mystique. Well, okay, you might not imagine steel fabrication as being romantic. But if you get what I'm trying to say here, I'm trying to say that you have to stand for something. You have to be clearly identifiable. That is what's attractive to young people. And if they are looking at um, a professional environment that matters as well so if you've got a a manufacturing environment that is well run well structured good processes they can see a clear purpose in their role and strong values they can see themselves fitting into that and they feel comfortable it's not about how dirty the job is or how sexy the industry is it's about what your value proposition and employment brand has to offer them that's really important to be working on building that
1: and how can companies really work on showcasing their employment brand?
2: Ah, websites are a really good um, a, a, a place to do this. Now, one of my favourite sort of theories that I like to uh, think through is this: is this modern age? It relates to selling, but it, if you're selling your company as a brand to uh, a, a potential employees, you are looking at um, Validation. Validation is probably the new ultimate sales tool. For instance, the like, the Facebook like. Liking something, endorsement. It's when a person has a bias, a human resources bias, and they think to themselves, if my friends bought that, or if my friends like that, I value my friends thinking, they must have thought it through, so it's probably fine, I'll buy that too. So if we, they like it, I'll like it. So if you have a website and a careers page on your website and you show people who work there and they say why they like to work there, if those people are of similar ilk or their friends or the things like that, you've got to remember like attracts like as well. And good people also know good people. There really is a herd mentality and in in, in a phenomenon that occurs in, in recruitment. And so all of these things help promote your company by validation, by by like and like,
1: and we talk about. So this all kind of leads into this idea of a tribe, and it seems to be a hot topic at the moment. Even here has been thinking about how do we build the hero tribe. How how do you actually create that connection? Um, and um, it's almost it, it's almost a loyalty, isn't it? How do you create that?
2: Yeah, loyalty. You, you the word you use is loyalty. Maybe you could even reframe that as engagement. And that again comes back to these, I don't like to sound like a broken record, but the values, and this is, the values are almost like you think of it as this is the way we do things around here, this is who we are and what we stand for, and this is our flavour. If you can promote that, you've got to articulate it. it, it can be a little bit hard at first, sitting down and working out what defines you, what makes you Italian, what makes you French, what makes you whatever. And then you say, well, that's the essence of it. If you can get people to buy into that and live and eat and breathe that every day at work, then you've got an attractive proposition for people who want to identify with the company and come on board. And they will stay. This is the other important part of this equation is that if you have this engagement and, and uh, purpose and, and um, culture, through your values as the starting point. It's through other things as well, but if you have it through that, you get a retention of stuff. People don't want to leave. They become like family. And I've seen some fantastic firms out there that have got people who have been there 18 years, 20 years. Now, they may not have sat down and written out their values and articulated it, but probably subconsciously, they're living, eating, sleeping, breathing those every day, and it's showing through. They care, and it's a very good thing.
1: And what are your tips for onboarding as a process?
2: Very, very important because maintaining engagement is the key to productivity and retention of staff long term. So you keep that knowledge in the organisation. It's also the key to training and people to want to learn and want to train is that engagement. So so. When you, if you bring somebody on board and you ignore them, you think you've done the hard work, you've identified this fantastic A player, a top grade person, and you've got them on board, and then you just think, oh, they're just going to start now, they'll be fine. Nobody knows everything from the start, and their experience, like your first day at school or your first week at school, if you have a really bad experience, you probably hate school. If you have a really good experience, you probably will love school and be a star student. So induction programs are very important for making sure that people fit in, have a good experience and and get up to speed quickly. It's also got a huge economic benefit because they'll get up to speed a lot quicker as well and become productive.
1: How much of a company's culture or values is tied up in a single individual? How how much can be either positively influenced or negatively influenced by a star performer or a really poor performer?
2: That's an interesting question. Poor performers can, if you like, it's a bit strong a language, but poison the well. They can disaffect other employees very, very quickly It's harder for A players to do the same. This is because it's harder for A players to pull people up than poor performers to pull people down. I often say nobody falls to the top of a mountain. Um, Going up is much, much harder. So the easiest default is to fall downwards or to pull down. And so, yes, you tend to probably find that um, negative people or negative performers will have a bigger effect in an organisation. So in terms of culture, yes, they can. Uh, They can be incredibly damaging. And that's why you need to have those early conversations to make sure you either neutralise that or, or help them engage better or help them to see that they probably need to work. And they'll maybe perfectly fine in another culture, in another organisation. They'll fit in absolutely perfectly. They're not bad. They just don't necessarily fit in your organisation.
1: There have been some um, examples in our industry where... Women have been put into roles where there's never been a woman in those roles before. How do you prepare the woman to go into that role? And also, how do you prepare um, those around her to support her? And I'm I'm actually not thinking of leadership roles so much. I'm thinking more around the, the practical roles on the shop floor.
2: I think the key thing is just to treat people as people equals, Um, you do have to make allowances. You have to understand, be sensitive um, uh, to different people's needs and different people have different needs. It doesn't matter what gender they are. And uh, the respect is the most important factor. If people, if one of your values is respect and you really live that and you truly respect people, then you don't want to, first of all, you don't impose your view on them. You regard their view as just as valid as your own. Therefore, you listen to it and you all develop um, a direction by consensus. That doesn't mean that everybody has a say. It means, or that everybody makes the decision. It means everybody can be heard and then somebody makes a decision. But I think it's just really important to respect, not necessarily to treat them differently, but to recognize where there are important differences.
1: And part of the issues that have been experienced is more around the physical aspects. You know, there may not be women's bathrooms
2: mm. and
1: um, so on. Uh, what, what importance does the physical environment have in terms of supporting diversity?
2: Mm. Hmm. Hmm. I haven't thought that one through particularly deeply. I would suppose um, uh, the, if, a, if a female... Or male, whatever, or a, a Malaysian, or a, a person from China, or an, a person from India, or an American, or a Canadian, or South African, comes across to work in a certain environment. I would like to think that they bring with them uh, prepare, uh, they're prepared to adapt, and then they are they bring with them resilience. And, but that doesn't mean that they can't have any problems or any issues. I think management need to be sensitive to where they may occur. But I think people like that uh, would come into those environments, hopefully willing to step up and fit in. Um, but again, you've just got to respect people and respect that everybody is different. It doesn't mean we all have to do everything um, differently. You can't Have a different process for every person. But if you've got this underlying respect and there's an openness to talk, that should get you through. But yes, there are obvious facilities that you'd have to change. And employers, I think, just have to take that on board. And most of the ones I speak to are very willing to make those changes. They're up with the modern world. They understand it and they're quite willing to make allowances for people.
1: What are some of the innovations coming out in HR? What what are companies starting to do a bit differently now?
2: I suppose it would be around engagement, focusing on engagement and top grading more. Um, recruitment practices probably very different now. Uh, it used to be post and hope, very simplistic. It's a much, much more complex environment that we live in now, not just because of employment law, but with the diverse workforce and with ageing workforce and with um, the difficulty in attracting people. It's a... It's much more of a science than it used to be, and I think now employers are becoming much more sophisticated. Back in the day, you know, they'd get recruitment agencies to do recruitment for them because they didn't really know how to do it, you know. Well, they've way moved on from that now, and most of them know very well. I've been very impressed by how much employment law, how much HR law, how much HR practice, how much HR process. A lot of these small companies already know. They're able to access it on the internet. They're far more sophisticated now. I think if there's been an innovative change in HR, it's been to build sophisticated tools with what we know and really take this to this next level where we're really focusing on inductions and onboarding and retention, retention strategies like clearly stated purposes, uh, a proper review process, not seen as time wasting, but investment. And, And I think firms are really much more sophisticated, mature now than they used to be 15 years ago.
1: You did mention some ways that we can retain talent. What are some other ways that are emerging to retain talent? Because it's getting very competitive.
2: Yeah, uh, we had an incident where we had a a case where a a company complained that they didn't want to train apprentices because as soon as the apprentices were qualified, they left. And my question to them was, well, why aren't you able to pinch someone else's apprentices? Yep. (laughs) Yep. And, Good may, question. Yeah, and and that they stopped in their tracks and realized they had to take a look at themselves because other people were doing it quite successfully. And I think if you've got a high staff turnover, you do need to have a look at what the reason for that is. And that may mean your management style and your internal practices, the way you do things around the shop may not be as good as somebody else is doing. So best practice is really, really important. Now, we've talked about this journey of um, identifying what sort of pe- people you want, what you want for the future, looking at your future needs, building proper uh, recruitment processes, then building proper onboarding and, and, and induction process, having proper values, all of these things to reinforce that, and clear purpose. People come to work. Um, it's funny, it's not about the money. People, although it is initially, money is important and we're seeing a lot of wage pressure uh, from companies uh, employing people at the moment. But once a person's in a job, what keeps them there is training and development and purpose. They understand what they're doing today and what they might be doing tomorrow in that comes to career progression follows on from that and succession planning as well. So it's important that people have a pathway and a plan. That is your biggest uh, retention strategy. And that's probably, it's a holistic thing. It's a combination of a lot of those small things. But if you, you really have to have clarity, clarity of pathway and purpose uh, to retain people. And those apprentices might have stayed if they had um, probably been valued more and maybe given this trust, uh, trust is a very big thing. We will back you. We will give you money now. Let's see if you deliver. This The younger generation of employees coming through want to be trusted first and deliver later rather than deliver first. The old school used to be pay your dues. Well, those days are probably gone now. You have to learn to put out now for these employees first and trust them to deliver, but then have good process if they don't, to get rid of them, <laughs> if need be.
1: Oh, thanks again for coming in, Rowan. It's been excellent, as usual, talking to you. Um, thank you. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much.
0: If you've enjoyed today's bonus episode, uh, Conversation with Rowan, please, 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 we'd like to encourage you to consider what kotakitanga might look like for you and your organisation. Kotahitanga is a people and HR innovation cluster that Hera has set up. And the basic idea behind that is that it is a place where you can get in touch with other like-minded people from other organisations trying to figure this stuff out, trying to figure out ways to better engage, better retain, and generally just shift the culture of your organisation to ensure that you hold on to the right people in the right positions uh, for as long as you can. Uh, there's lots of great conversation, lots, lots of great resource And lots of great opportunities to uh, collaborate and co-create with the other members of Kotahitanga and ultimately move the industry forward uh, as a whole. So if you want to be a part of that, please get in touch with me. My details are in the show notes. Or conversely, you can email kotahitanga at hera.org.nz.